This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, where every week we examine the financial and business news from around the world. I'm Nick Howard. Joining me today is Oanda's Senior Market Analyst, Craig Earlham. Craig, good to have you back on the podcast. Let's start off with what has been a, a bumpy week for markets. How are we ending the week? So uh, Europe seems to be suffering more than anywhere else. We had a bit of a flat session across Asia overnight. And really, that looks to have carried more into the US. US looking at a bit of a flat open as well. But here in Europe, we've got indices down uh, around 1% or 2%. And it does seem to be this uh, this covid story that seems to be a major drag here the the new quarantine measures that have been announced by boris johnson uh, on france the netherlands and a few others adding to the list that already includes spain uh, because of the rising number of coronavirus cases we're having there i think it's if there's a 200 uh, in 100,000 cases over the course of seven days on average then they be effectively become added to this list and it seems france has now fallen into that category uh, and that's obviously going to hit the travel and tourism sectors Spain and France are two of the biggest tourist destinations as far as the UK consumers are concerned. So politically, that's it's quite a sensitive uh, issue and a bold thing to do. It, naturally going to attract a lot of fierce rhetoric from the other side and also countermeasures as well, you could imagine, um, as well from France once this measure is put into place. It's also going to affect the UK tourism industry for the same reasons. If you do see countermeasures put in place, then that's going to have an impact as well. The impact on the consumer as well, now having to get back from France within 24 hours and what you can imagine is going to happen to price there. So the human angle as well is also quite interesting. But from a purely markets perspective, it seems that this has really dragged on sentiment heading into the end of the week. There was a survey out overnight stating that about two thirds of British consumers wouldn't consider going on holiday abroad for the uh, for the time being, based partly on the uncertainty. You don't know whether you'll arrive in a country only to find out that it's now on a quarantine list and your holiday has just been extended by two weeks of uh, potentially unpaid leave when you get back home. Not good for any travel firms right now. No, you can imagine that that response may have been different two or three weeks ago before it was imposed on Spain, which is, like I say, a hugely popular travel uh, tourist destination. After the announcement that we've had today, you can imagine that attitudes are going to continue to shift. And then it just becomes a case of who can afford quarantine and who can't afford quarantine, who's going to have kids that need to go back to school, who's going to have a job that they need to actually attend the office or wherever their place of work is, and who is working from home and can afford to quarantine themselves for two weeks and can therefore potentially enjoy uh, a cheap holiday abroad uh, and I think that's you kind of be going to be separated broadly speaking into those two categories but it's not really going to help confidence and we're now coming towards the end of the summer so this was a crucial period for many of these holiday companies is is we've missed out on a large bulk of this summer we now need to make the most of the final kind of six week period and see what we can do to enable ourselves to effectively survive through to the to uh, next year so this is a huge hit uh, as far as they're concerned and as, as we've already alluded to this now doesn't just impact France and Spain and the Netherlands and Belgium it also affects any other countries who are seeing a slight uptick in COVID cases because people are going to think twice about where they're going to go. Now the big story that never happened in the US this week was the congressional stimulus package. Um, when we spoke last week already it had been delayed and Congress was um, forced to delay its own recess. That package still hasn't arrived. Now the the president says it may never occur. Do you still retain your optimism that it will actually happen? 
Donald Trump obviously signed that executive order, which um, intends to effectively roll over certain provisions that were in the previous package. It reduces the amount that people can claim from $600 a week to $400 a week. But again, it it's not as straightforward as the previous program was. Uh, he's rolled over things like student loan repayments and uh, the payroll tax as well. So there's a number of areas where these have been rolled over. But in each, in almost every case, it seems to that be fraught with difficulty compared to what the previous agreement was. So while he has initiated this executive order, it's far from a perfect solution, and well, both and, sides still. And the fact that that executive order is being challenged as to whether he does have the power to actually put in place some of those measures. Yeah, exactly. So it's inevitable that an agreement needed to be had. This was uh, effectively a solution, as far as the White House is concerned, that takes the pressure almost off the Republicans in particular, piles the pressure back on the Democrats and uh, hopes that they will come in more in line with where the uh, Republicans were standing because the, the, the void between the two, the difference between a trillion and three and a half trillion uh, in terms of stimulus package is not small uh, and the, the gap just didn't seem to be closing. So I think this was kind of a temporary measure to pile on the pressure. But I believe that Congress is now um, gone into its recess. So it's going to be September at the earliest before any, uh, any agreement is going to be reached. So we just have to hope that the package which is now in place is going to tie people over but I, I fear it's going to be a, a bit of a difficult month for for many of those people who, who have relied so heavily on the previous support packages which have been announced I, I feel like this has this has a lot more to run I still don't think a package is going to be agreed in September but it may be agreed as part of something much bigger and um, and we'll have to see how the American people take this because this is a huge stimulus package at a crucial time both in terms of people's jobs, people's livelihoods, the economy, and also we're now less than three months to the election. So it will be really interesting to see how the American public takes this. And ultimately, if things aren't going well and if these packages aren't sufficient, who are they going to blame? What's the economic reality of another month without this stimulus? Just thinking it through, I mean, we're already seeing a great deal of unemployment of people being made redundant in the states. Without the the rolling over of, of benefits, etc., not only have you got people potentially struggling to survive, but also that dampening effect on consumer spending as well, to be blunt. Yeah, you would, you would think that that is going to be the case. And we've already seen, for example, today, the retail sales and figures just come out just as we've started recording. So I haven't had a chance to delve into the detail, but we can see that it did actually uh, miss expectations. We've had two strong months of retail sales figures bouncing back where we've had a um, an increase of 17.7% and then an increase of 7.5%. This month was only expected to be a 2% increase and was actually 1.2% increase. So it does seem that it may already be starting to take its toll. It, as I say, it's going to be interesting to see what impact it has on the consumer spending side of things, but also, again, on the labour market as well. One of the things that the Republicans have repeatedly stressed is that a $600 a week package uh, is a disincentive for people to actually return to work. So I wonder if if this does create that additional hardship, which many people are uh, assuming it will, both in terms of accessing those funds, but also whether the money, whether the funds will be enough, um, will people be incentivized to return to work? So will there be uh, some, the, the downside uh, of people obviously struggling, which is the last thing that we want to see and the last thing we need right now? But is, are the Republicans maybe going to see some upside in terms of people returning to work when they may not otherwise have done so, um, as per the, the, the belief uh, with regards to the, the more generous uh, stimulus package that the Democrats want to put in place? So I think that we're going to learn a lot about uh, how 
this is progressing now over the course of the next few weeks. Like I say, the consumer side, as we've seen from the retail sales figures today, suggests at least on the face of it that it is already having a bit of an impact. Now let's move to China, where there have also been disappointing retail sales figures um, and also a, a slowdown in terms of industrial growth. Obviously, very different economy to the US, but also in a different stage of coronavirus. But this has also had a bit of a depressing effect on markets. Yeah, it has. I mean, the, the, the figures missed across the board. Industrial production was slightly shy at 4.8%. Retail sales at minus 1.1%. Uh, and then unemployment and fixed asset investment was pretty much as you'd expect. So, yeah, we did see a bit of a miss across the board, broadly speaking, on this side. But this is economy, as you say, they're in a different uh, phase, I guess, of the coronavirus than the rest of the world is. And the economy is doing better. And I think many people are anticipating that we are going to see uh, a large amount of stimulus coming from the the, the Chinese uh, regime in order to try and grow their way out of this issue and prevent any longer term and broader scale damage here. Uh, That's one of the reasons, for example, why we have seen things like iron ore prices um, bounce back is this kind of anticipation that we are going to see. Uh, large-scale spending, uh, stimulus from uh, from China in order to try and cope with this crisis. But I think every country is going to have to try and cope with it in one way or another. And each in each and every case, it is going to require uh, digging deep into um, into reserves in order to try and, do, and try and do so. You mentioned iron ore there. It's been a big week in terms of shifts in commodity prices. Um, you know, not just these sort of practical materials, but precious metals like gold and silver. What's going on at the moment? Yeah, so gold actually um, in the last couple of weeks rallied to record high levels and then it went even further again. So the record high was just short of $2,000. This was achieved back in the early part of the last decade, again, when we were seeing unprecedented amounts of monetary stimulus from central banks at the time. And we've gone uh, an enormous step further now. Uh, And it seems that the the kind of softening of the US dollar over the course of the last month or so has propelled gold and other precious metals, including silver, higher to these kind of record levels as far as gold is concerned. Through through two thousand dollars and close to twenty one hundred dollars, and that was until earlier in this week. Earlier this week, we saw prices effectively plunge. Now you can see this occasionally when you do see these long, uh, long standing, uh, quite aggressive rallies, especially when you're look, looking at these kind of record levels. The, uh, the, the you can see the downside can be quite extreme, and that's exactly what we saw. We've seen gold fall uh, around ten percent, silver even greater again. Silver widely regarded as almost gold's uh, younger, uh, more aggressive sibling. So when you see big moves in gold, you tend to see bigger moves in silver, and that's exactly what we saw on uh, Tuesday. I think it was we saw gold fall five percent, silver fell fifteen percent, and this was all linked to um, the U.S. to inflation to uh, Treasury. Uh, bonds, which is not necessarily where you'd expect to see the link in this market. But effectively, there's uh, the US 10-year tips, which is the kind of inflation-protected bonds, the yield on them started to rise. It was while they were actually falling, which meant that effectively people thought that um, the interest rates were continuing to fall and they were reflected in the bond yields, as it were, while they were falling, gold was going higher and higher and higher as the dollar was uh, declining. Well, they started to bounce back and that really sent a shockwave through these precious metal markets. And therefore now, that's why if you are looking at many of these news websites, you are seeing a lot more about US 10-year tips, which is something that you may not have been reading that heavily about before. And it's the direct link between the two, which is why we saw gold and silver almost falling off a cliff, as it were, earlier on this week. They have rebounded a little bit. They've got gold around 1950 at the time of recording. We've got 
silver around $27 as well. But these have become extremely volatile and I think you're going to be reading a lot more about it over the course uh, of the coming weeks if you haven't been already. Now, we started today talking about the UK and the changes in terms of quarantine, but actually we've had some very grim data out from the UK economy. I'm not thinking just of the plunge in GDP, but also the jobs figures out earlier this week. What are your thoughts about the UK economy looking to the back end of this year? I mean, my view hasn't really changed as far as the UK economy is concerned based on the data that we've seen this week. The GDP figure was grim, as you say, but it was very much in line with expectations. The one area of positivity came from the fact that the monthly June number, which was the final month of the second quarter, showed a month-on-month growth of 8.7%. So this is when the shop started to open that we saw quite a strong rebound in the UK economy. So this gives us hope going into the summer that we may hopefully see a, a big turnaround in the third quarter and that's one of the reasons why the Bank of England's become more optimistic in terms of how it fears the UK is going to be hit this year. We're obviously still forecasting a, a, a strong contraction uh, over the course of 2020 but if these this has been significantly revised down from the Bank of England a couple of weeks ago and hopefully they will see similar uh, as well for the unemployment reading as well and I think that's the really important part here is the we're looking at the furlough scheme and that's really all the data that we have to contend with right now we're seeing a number of job uh, uh, job layoffs being announced and we can deal with that data as well but we still don't have a full picture of what the unemployment situation is going to look like at the end of this and only then can we see how long and how great an impact it's going to have longer term on the uk economy i think still most people still are forecasting unemployment to be around seven or eight percent which is effectively double where we are now which would be dreadful obviously But if we continue to see more months like June, then potentially that could be a little bit lower and we could see a bit more of a rapid rebound. I am hopeful that the furlough scheme, one of the things that that will have achieved is it will enable people to prepare for the tough periods ahead, which may may mean that the downturn is going to be less severe than what we've seen in the past. It's one of the reasons why when people are talking about the recovery, people seem to be, I'm a V-shaped recoveryist, I'm a a, a U-shaped recoveryist, W maybe. Uh, And I've very much put myself in the night like swoosh camp because I feel like that just reflects more the kind of situation that we're dealing with right now. Just to clarify here, so this is talking about the shape of the economic growth. You're suggesting that the downward um, portion of the tick we've already seen, you're mm-hmm. now heading into a sort of smooth upward curve, um, which would be the swoosh. Yeah, exactly. I don't think we're going to see the sharp recovery that a V-shaped recovery would bring. I do think the high unemployment has to take its toll as far as I'm concerned. Even given what I've said, I hope it's going to take its toll less than we've saw, for example, a decade ago. Uh, But I do think it will take its toll. But I do think the recovery will come quicker than uh, some people fear. So I I kind of feel like that's going to be more accurate in terms of this. But I think we still have so much to learn. And I think that's one of the reasons why we need to be a bit open-minded. People can become fixated on well you've made this forecast and therefore this is what you have to stick to that's never the case and it's certainly not the case now it only takes Boris Johnson announcing that quarantine measures being imposed on France for it to have a big impact on the French tourism sector and therefore the potential for uh, for the growth within that sector within France same applies uh, vice versa if we see segments of the economy having to be uh, restricted once again then that's going to take its toll this is going to be an ever-evolving situation many of these forecasts are going to continue to change over time and we're going to continue 
need to learn a lot more about the situation as we currently have it. So, uh, I mean, l let's take one situation that we have currently in that when we are seeing surges in cases, uh, we do it does seem to be amongst younger people because they're obviously the ones who are more inclined to take a few extra risks uh, with the economic reopening, which means we're not seeing the same kind of uh, impact uh, uh, overall in terms of the death toll, etc., that we have seen before. Uh, what impact is that going to have on, on people's behaviour over the course of the rest of this year? What is it going to have on the government decision-making? It's still really difficult to say. Uh, but this, like I said, this is an ever-evolving ever situation. And uh, I, I am optimistic that we can see uh, a decent recovery, but I'm still not a V-shaped recovery person because I still think there are going to be many potholes, um, many challenges and risks ahead that is going to make this a little bit more difficult and a little bit challenging to navigate. That is, of course, until we see a vaccine, uh, fingers crossed, and it, there is obviously growing hope all the time that we are going to see something maybe even as early as the end of this year but um, I guess we'll have to just wait and see on that one. Well actually let's talk about that so earlier this week Russia announced that it was rolling out a vaccine many experts in the west um, poured cold water on the idea and actually claimed that it might be dangerous because it hadn't gone through the the levels of testing that of the norm it feels as though this is as much about geopolitics as it is epidemiology but what did you actually make of the story yeah, I mean, I guess we're all epidemiologists nowadays, aren't we? Um, that's one of the that's one of the things that has come with twenty twenty. So obviously, you can't ignore the warnings that are coming from the various professionals and people who are far more qualified to just talk about this. The WHO, obviously, being one of them. It seems that this hasn't been through stage three testing. Maybe only going through stage two testing now, I believe, and therefore it seems very early to kind of declare a success. Um, so just to clarify, so these are the stages and the numbers of people who have actually been tested. Stage three three thousands of people usually takes about a year exactly and obviously this is this this has been um speeded up for all companies in terms of the testing process so you're not going to see the length of testing that you've seen previously but still, you are still going to see large-scale testing so that people can see one the effectiveness to uh, the knock-on effects the the negative side effects and whether the risks offset the rewards uh, as far as as far as it's concerned and who it can be effectively uh, given out to so one of the criticisms obviously for this russia vaccine has been that it's not been through that stage three testing so you can't you can't know how viable it is as a as, as an option yet there's been a lot of uh, claims made that this is more of a PR stunt kind of Russia first past the post type uh, thing that does feel like a big geopolitical nightmare as well um, well I don't think it's coincidence that it's named Sputnik which of course was <laughs> Russia winning the space race a satellite in space Definitely not. Um, I think that it's it's hard to really add to that. It's quite clear why they why that's been called just that. So I'm I'm not necessarily optimistic with that particular vaccine. Don't get me wrong. I've got all my fingers and toes crossed. And for me, like I'm sure many others, I I really couldn't care less who who gets there first. As long as it becomes widely available and we can start to move on with our everyday lives healthily, then I think everyone's just hoping that one of them passes the test. I think there's around 20 odd now that are kind of up at stage three testing, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so that I mean it that does create hope and every time we do hear about a new vaccine that's going into stage three testing the markets get a little bit of a bump because just by pure odds the more that we have at that kind of later stage the more chance there is that at least one of them uh, will work so th the markets did get a bump earlier this week on that russian story which was really interesting that show goes to show you how sensitive these markets are but i wouldn't necessarily say i'm optimistic per se because again one of the things which 
not being an epidemiologist myself so therefore you rely on the content which you do read from various professionals online is that there's a lot of trials which go to stage three testing which never get any further Mm. so until we start to get past that phase um, I don't want to get too hopeful. We've covered in detail the week behind us now let's look ahead to next week First up, we have another round of Brexit talks, the seventh since the new agreement with Boris Johnson's government and the EU. It feels, however, as though the same sticking points are there that were, well, even a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's not unnatural for the most difficult and most contentious areas of any agreement to be left till the end. Uh, Go through all the easy bits first, cross all your T's, dot all your I's, make sure all the easy bits are sorted and then leave the the tough parts of the negotiations for right at the end where the bargaining can happen a a bit easier uh, and with a deadline behind it. And that seems to be where we're heading now. Both sides still seem optimistic that a a September agreement can be reached. I'm still cynical because we've seen this all before and three months before a deadline just doesn't seem to happen that often. It tends to come much later in the day when there's a lot more pressure on. And it seems that the, the points to be discussed, the contentious points to be discussed primarily next week is fishing rights and level playing field again two very contentious issues so personally i'm i'm skeptical i don't think we'll get a solution to this next week but it is five days of talks so all we really need to see is some form of progress that we are working towards a deal and i think while i've never been a a no deal proponent and i've never even thought that no deal would happen because i've always been too optimistic and sometimes that's come uh, that's worked against me um, uh, famously with the, the Theresa May deal um, and but I, I feel that no deal is uh, as, uh, as bad a time as ever to be going down the no deal route and I think that that applies to both sides ne- neither side's ever wanted a no deal but now more than ever we're dealing with a global pandemic that would be the uh, that'd be a terrible situation for us, terrible self-inflicted wound for us all to be dealing with so I think the incentive to make a deal at some cost, is going to be there on both sides. It just means compromise. Again, I'm not in the negotiations themselves, so who knows where the final compromises will be made, but I'm sure it will probably happen at about 4am, somewhere in Brussels, as people are walking out, rubbing their eyes, just hoping for their beds. Oh, possibly a terrible way for a bunch of negotiators to spend their Christmas. Um, <laughs> before I let you go, Craig, anything else on your agenda for next week? Yes, I mean, next week's quite light on the data side of things. So we do have things like UK inflation, which I think is going to be, uh, which is going to attract a lot of interest, especially after the US inflation talk that we've had uh, this week. We've got things like the Fed meeting minutes on Wednesday, which always attract some attention, although already they feel to an extent uh, relatively outdated. We have things like PMIs later on on, on Friday as well, uh, manufacturing and services PMIs for uh, across Europe uh, and a few other countries as well, UK retail sales. So a little bit light on the data side of things, if I'm honest. The other one that stands out is going to be the um, the OPEC meeting, um, where the, the discussion is going to be had about where, where the deal stands, what kind of tapering is needed to happen. Of course, this is the first month of tapering. Um, as part of that initial huge um, momentous cut that was agreed earlier on in the pandemic. So the discussions will be had in the middle of next week. This obviously comes on the back of the uh, IEA this week, the International Energy Agency uh, reporting that they've revised down their growth forecast for oil demand this year uh, because of uh, a slowdown in air travel. Uh, Again, links to the story that we saw earlier this week with the restrictions that are being uh, continually imposed in this ever-evolving situation. So the IEA has become the latest to revise down their um, demand. They still think that, um, that... 
the the demand oil demand is going to be just shy i think of 92 million barrels a day this year that was down from around 100 million barrels a day at the start of this year even in 2021 they think it's going to be around 97 million barrels a day again three by three million barrels short um uh, and uh, and, and therefore crude prices are going to continue to remain sensitive they're still trading around the upper end of their summer ranges they came off a little bit earlier on on the IEA news but they are a bit about flat now so I think the OPEC meeting next week could be really interesting as far as the oil market is concerned we get a more insight into compliance etc and uh, the prospect for further cuts down the road but apart from that I think um, it's just going to be the same old stories to keep an eye out for whether it is things like the US presidential election the pandemic, the rising cases across Europe at this moment in time. Uh, and obviously, how can we possibly forget US and China? Craig, let's leave it there. Plenty to be getting on with. That's Craig Earlham, Senior Market Analyst at Oanda. This is the Oanda Market Insights podcast, available from iTunes and all popular podcast apps. I'm Nick Howard. Join us again next week. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.